Western scholars based in a kind of Christian and Jewish tradition have looked at Islam and they've traced the shape of Christianity over it again and again and again, but without actually seeing it properly. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm an academic writer and translator specializing in political theology, the intersection between religion and politics. Joining me in this episode for a conversation about the theological relationship between Islam and Christianity is Dr. Mark Jury. Mark is a senior research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Center for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology. He has not one but two PhDs in linguistics and Islamic theology. He has held visiting academic positions in linguistics at MIT, UCLA, UC Santa Cruz and Stanford. In 1992, while head of the Department of Linguistics and Language Studies at Melbourne University, he became the youngest person elected to the Australian Academy of Humanities. Mark speaks and writes on relations between monotheistic faiths, Christian missions, and religious freedom. He's the author of many books on Islam and other topics, and in particular, he's the author of a recent book, a tremendous book, which I've had the pleasure of reading cover to cover, called The Quran and Its Biblical Reflexes, Investigations into the Genesis of a Religion. Mark, warm welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Jonathan. Now, Mark, you and I have both spent a significant part of our professional lives working on one aspect or another of Islam. And I think it might be interesting for listeners if we tell our origin stories, so to speak. I mean, it's not exactly a Marvel (laughs) movie here, but uh, I'll invite you to go first and then I'll share how I came to be interested in Islam. So could you tell us a little bit about how you developed this interest in Islam? Sure. Well... Uh, it began really through my linguistics fieldwork. I was doing a PhD on the language of Aceh in Indonesia, which involved going there and living in a village and living among the Achenese people. Within Indonesia, the Achenese, who number about five or six million, are considered to be the most strict and radical Islamic group, uh, so much so that the government has given the, the, the province or region of Aceh a special status. They have Sharia provisions that don't apply elsewhere in Indonesia. And they call themselves the veranda of Mecca because it was the last stopping off point on the way on the way to the, the Hajj, to the pilgrimage. So I was living amongst Muslim people and I learned a lot about Islam on a just face to face basis. You know, what people believed, their experiences of, of going on pilgrimage. And the Achenese had a long history of jihad, of, of violent um, religious opposition uh, and engagement with uh, with enemies, um, both pre-colonial and post-colonial. There was a, a 40 year long um, insurgency that they fought against the Dutch, for which they are famous in Indonesia. Now, I, I learned a lot about Islam living in that context, but I, I didn't study it. I almost felt that if once I got engaged with Islam on a formal basis, it would change my life. And I wasn't ready for that. Um, so I just dealt with whatever people shared with me. I was a Christian. I, I would speak about my faith. And in many ways, I found it really enjoyable to talk about faith with them. Um, but then when 9-11 happened, uh, uh, someone called me up at two in the morning and I watched it. And I knew immediately who had done that. I understood the ideology that could produce those uh, shocking and amazing uh, events. 
And I realized that firstly, I knew something about Islam. I knew the verses that were found in the in the backpacks of the of the bombers of, of 9-11, you know, the attackers. Um, but I also realized I, I, I needed to know a lot more. So then I began to teach and research and uh, really equip people to understand and engage with Islam. So that's that's how I got into this. I, I was a pastor at the time. So for most of the last 20 years, I've been working as a pastor, but at the same time, studying about Islam, teaching about it, and, and often traveling and writing. That's fascinating because 9-11 was the the crucial moment for me too in terms of sparking my interest in Islam, although we took kind of different journeys or pathways after that, I think. I happened to be awake at the time 9-11 happened. And of course, I say awake because in Australia... I guess the attacks happened sometime around 9.30, 10, 10.30 p.m. at night. And I was actually watching a, a replay of an AFL game. I was living in Melbourne at the time. I've forgotten the, the strange term they have. There's a funny word they use for the um, text that comes up at the bottom of a screen. But I saw this text saying uh, two planes have crashed into both of the Twin Towers in New York. And of course, I knew immediately that's one, one plane could be an accident, but two, no. I was actually about to go to bed. I thought, well, I'll stay up a little bit longer and see if there's any coverage this is before there's any 24-hour um, free-to-air news <laughs> stations in Australia within half an hour all five of the or six of the channels that we had <laughs> back then started covering it live and I basically stayed up for the next six to eight hours and just watched the entire thing unfold and this this occurred shortly before I was about to move to Canberra to start a career working for the federal government not in anything related to 9-11 that was at the then Department of Immigration and Multicultural Affairs but I I realized I was sort of in my mid-20s and I thought this this is going to be one of the seminal strategic challenges of our time uh, at least for, for a period it's debatable now exactly where it figures but setting that aside and I thought well I should I'm good with languages so maybe I should learn Arabic and learn something about Islamic theology and maybe get a job in a cooler part of the government like intelligence. And that's exactly what I did. So I, I became quite a fluent speaker in Arabic. This is cutting a long story short. Did a Master's of Arts at the um, Centre for Arab and Islamic Studies at the Australian National University. Wrote a thesis on Quranic hermeneutics. And I did end up working in intelligence for seven and a half years. First at the Defence Signals Directorate as it was back then. But my my sort of key role was as a senior terrorism analyst at the Office of National Assessments, as it was. All these agencies have had name changes and structural changes as they happen, but I don't want to bore listeners <laughs> with all the, the uh, mechanisms of government. But that job gave me the opportunity to travel all over the world, talking about jihad from Afghanistan to CIA headquarters, from Denmark to Kenya, from Turkey to South Korea, you name it. I've been in lots of interesting places and we were really looking at global Islamist terrorism. And so I got to look at the what I would call the contemporary jihadist movement from every part of the world. I really specialized in South Asia and then I acquired the whole of Africa at one point in my portfolio. And then when I left in 2014, I spent a couple of years writing a few academic articles and popular articles uh, just because I had a few things to say. But... I've since then moved on to other topics, but that's just by way of introduction that Mark and I actually, interestingly, through 9-11 have come into <laughs> this story of Islam as non-Muslims, of course, we, we have to say I'm also a Christian, as listeners will uh, know, and that places us well to have this conversation. Mark's done the more serious work, it has to be said, but I've done enough work to actually understand 
the significance of Mark's work. Now, it's difficult to know how to get into this topic, uh, Mark, because some listeners won't know a lot about Islam, and this is not a beginner's book on Islam, but this show is about having sort of deep conversations <laughs> on topics. What I'd like to do is actually read the first paragraph from your book, because it is a beautiful summary. Um of its argument and some of the really, really interesting issues in terms of the relationship between the Quran and the Bible and more broadly, Islam and Christianity. And so that will just, we'll, I'll read that out so listeners have a, a sense of where we're going and then we'll tease it out hopefully in enough detail to sort of draw listeners in, uh, the probably 90% who aren't experts in Islam and reading the Quran in Arabic. So this is how the book begins. This book addresses the question of whether there is a unifying continuity, what might be called a family resemblance between the Bible and the Quran. Similarities between these two scriptures are plain enough, but how deep do they go? Is what the Quran has in common with the Bible enough to make it a continuous development from the Bible in some coherent sense? Or does the Quran represent a break from the Bible, a separate creative development with similarities which do not run deep? This is the question explored in this book, and the answer proposed will be that the Quran is a creative theological innovation which repurposes biblical lexical and textual materials to serve its own distinctive theological agenda. Now, that's where we were going in terms of the discussion, but I think a step along the way that will be useful is to explain to listeners why this question of continuity arises in the first place, particularly for someone that may not be familiar with the Quran or even what is Muslims believe. Well, I think it's become commonplace in our culture to refer to the idea of Abrahamic faiths. There's this idea that's become embedded in, in, in thought that Judaism, Christianity and Islam share a common heritage. Um, they go back to a, a common source, hence the name Abrahamic, and they, they share a lot of uh, ideas about human beings, about life, and, and in, in a sense they're, they're, they're considered to be a natural grouping of religions in contrast to, say, um, Hinduism or, or other religions. Um, and th that raises deep questions like what is the nature of that relationship? Um, it's actually an important political issue because one of the, the debates that's going on in Europe is whether Islam is in some sense indigenous to Europe. That is, if Islam and Christianity and Judaism are part of a closely related family of faiths, you know, on a family tree, if you like, cousins or something like that, then the, 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 in, the intrusion of Islam into Europe and now it's a major religion within Europe is not culturally a threat because... Um, after all, uh, it's not as if Islam was an alien faith. It, it is like a sister faith, uh, as it were, to, to Christianity. So it doesn't bring a completely different worldview, but um, that it ac actually should fit in Europe. Now, this is a, it's a high level discussions that are taking place, but a very important, a really important question. Um, and I, I think that in general, there's been, post 9-11, there's been a huge emphasis on embracing the other, on seeking to build bridges, on trying to form uh, a common sense of identity and purpose. So there's a lot of will behind the, the idea that uh, Islam and Christianity are, are, are somehow closely related and shouldn't be seen as a, an, Islam shouldn't be seen as an alien intrusion into Europe. 
So I think it's a really important question at that level. Um, at another level, uh, the reality is that the Quran has a huge number of references to biblical materials. And you know what to make of that is a really interesting question. In fact, both Christians and Jews have wrestled with that since really since the seventh century, since Islam began. What is there so much? Why is there so much of the Bible or references to the Bible in the Quran? And what does that mean for the relationship between Islam and Christianity or, or Islam and Judaism? And um, I think the default assumption, uh, which has been in place for more than a thousand years, is that in some sense, Islam developed out of Christianity and or Judaism. And it, it, it represents um, perhaps a deviation from it, but a, a branching out, not a completely different system. And um, there's a lot I could go into to give some context for that. But, 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 it, but in essence, my book was saying, I think that's a mistake. Islam is not um, a derivative of Judaism, Christianity, despite the presence of a, many hundreds of biblical references. And that creates an intellectual puzzle. Like, how can you say that the Quran or Islam is not a development from Judaism and Christianity when there's so much of those two faiths embedded within it. How do you, how can you make sense of that? Like, and I think one of the problems is that people just can't imagine an answer to that question. And so you fall back on the continuity assumption, which has all these complex implications. I remember um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Ryan Williams, was arguing in the UK that the UK legal system should embrace Sharia law. And one of the things he said is, it's not as if it's an alien system. And just that single phrase, it, 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 there's so much that stands behind that in his views about the relationships between the faiths. And it's extremely important because if you're going to um, assign Muslim women to have their marriages regulated by Sharia law on the basis that you think Christianity and Islam are kind of kindred faiths, um, that's a, that's that's hugely important. It's not a trivial question. It's a really important question for human rights, for the political future of of Western nations. Which is really to say that this is not merely an academic question. Fascinating though it is. I mean, it really is an intellectual <laughs> problem that you stated, but it has real world ramifications for the way you um, approach Islam. I guess within a multicultural substrate. I'm going to pick out one of your linguistic terms. That is Judeo. Uh, Christian, although obviously that's under contest and challenge today. I think it's worth just adding before we move on that uh, when Mark talks about the just hundreds of references for any Christian or even non-religious person who might have some familiarity with the Bible, a lot of many of the key figures also feature in the Quran and also many of the stories, albeit in with strangely different uh Detail. So there's Adam and Eve in the Quran. You've got Noah. There's a there's a flood. There's Moses, and there's even Jesus. Although there's a kind of he features in a polemical way, and really uh, bridging off that polemical way, it's worth noting that Islam itself actually makes the claim that it stands within this same tradition, but it doesn't present itself as a development so much as a correction. That is the uh, Islamic view of Christianity and Judaism, I'm going to simplify here, There's a, we could do a whole podcast on it, is that basically everyone from Adam forward, including all of the uh, Hebrew 
prophets and Jesus, who is regarded as a prophet rather than the son of God in Islam, they came down and, and taught and lived as Muslims. And the Jewish and Christian scriptures, which received the Muslim revelation, uh, distorted, perverted, fell into error, uh, whatever you want to call it. And so Muhammad, being the seal of prophets, the final prophet, has kind of restored the true teaching of Jesus, Moses, and the true form of submitting to Allah. So it actually makes this claim that is very surprising and confronting for Jews and Christians, because, of course, there's no mention of Muhammad in, in their religious texts, because he comes six centuries later, uh, which is one reason why uh, your average believer really has no idea how to respond <laughs> to Muslims who come and know a lot. You know, they can talk about Noah, they can talk about Moses, they can talk about Abraham, they have a view of Jesus, and in fact, they have a lot of esteem for Jesus. He's the most important prophet uh, after Muhammad. And of course, the Christian's not going to know anything about the Quran or not even realize that the Quran <laughs> talks about Jesus, Mary, and all these figures and so this question of continuity is in some ways central now mark before we get into your explanation which is highly it's very original it's very provocative personally i find it very compelling but i think as a way of foregrounding that could you tell us give us a, a brief survey of the prevailing explanations that have been offered either historically or by Muslims and Christians or, or just secular scholars, for want of a better term, to explain this continuity question. That is the the fact that there is so much biblical material <laughs> in the Quran. Yeah, I, and Jonathan, I think you're absolutely right that Islam uh, claims to be the true Judaism and the true Christianity. And uh, I think the Quran even says uh, that Abraham was not a Jew or a Christian, but a Muslim. Mm. And Jesus' disciples say, we are Muslims. Um, so basically what Islam does through the Quran is to claim that the heritage of biblical faiths is Islamic and belongs to Islam. As I sometimes put it, if Solomon ever built a temple in Jerusalem, it was a mosque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. And to understand that is to understand a lot of the, uh, the challenge that is, um, that is in, in the battles in, in, in Israel and between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, now, this apologetic challenge, the claim of Islam that it is the true Christianity and the true Judaism, uh, obviously came as a, as a big shock <laughs> to Jews and Christians across the Middle East in the conquest, in the context of uh, a very rapid conquest and dominance, political uh, military dominance. And the, the response to that of both Jews and Christians from quite early on was to say that um, Muhammad had been influenced or taught by Christians so or by Jews. So the Jews said, uh, Jews have said that uh, there were some rabbis who found that Muhammad was threatening their people, so they pretended to convert to Islam, and then they, they gave Muhammad the Quran and they trained him in, in, in kind of biblical beliefs. And there's a Christian version of that, which says that a monk called Bahira, or also called Sergius in the Syriac sources, um, uh, taught Muhammad as his disciple and Muhammad was being discipled uh, then became heretical and moved away from true Christian faith. So this has been a really standard view amongst Christians since um, almost since the time of Muhammad. John of Damascus had this view, um, uh, Thomas Aquinas, Luther, Nicholas of Cusa, who was a really great uh, Catholic intellectual, 
from the late Middle Ages. So they all had the view that Islam was um, a kind of heresy. Uh, so the, the, the idea of calling something a heresy is a, is a claim of continuity with a bit of discontinuity. So a heresy is something that develops out of the root, but, but loses its way or, or goes beyond the pale. So this claim that Islam was a kind of heresy that Muhammad um, perhaps uh, lost his way a bit or, um, or moved away from the true faith has been the absolutely completely dominant view um, in, in amongst Christians and also Jews. I mean, it's really striking that both Christians and Jews said that one of their number trained Muhammad. And I, I, I read somewhere that Zoroastrians had the same view that a Zoroastrian trained. Oh, really? <laughs> so this is their explanation. Everyone's the... trying to claim everyone in every direction <laughs> in this right. story, aren't they? Jesus is a Muslim. No, Muhammad is a Christian. And and it, it seems almost like a mirror image. Like, uh, you know, oh, you can't claim our history. We're going to claim yours. Um, and it's it's been such a dominant view. Um, there was a, an Anglican bishop called Kenneth Cragg writing in the middle of the 20th century, and he argued that Muhammad was well-intentioned but had somehow encountered a poor Christianity, so he's turned off Christianity. And he said that Christians have a responsibility to kind of restore Islam to its true Christianity, um, to, to retrieve it. So he had this doctrine of retrieval. It's as if you know you've got the the cathedral in Constantinople that became Istanbul, which has been turned into a mosque, and it's as if you should just scrape all the paint off and restore it back to a church. So this has been the mainstream view of Christian scholars in dealing with Islam that Islam is 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 a continuous development, but has lost its way, and it can somehow be brought back. Um, and uh, I, I find that actually really challenging and and deeply deeply problematic. That's, that's fascinating in, in itself and maybe we'll have occasion to get there but I know there are many fascinating rabbit holes to venture down as we move forward. Just following on, f- on from that, could you tell us a little bit about what some of the explanations are that have been offered in the academy? So if we just move away from, from Christians and Jews for a moment, they I mean obviously some Christians and Jews have worked on this in, in universities but irrespective of the religious background or presuppositions of the scholars, because this is a this is a widely acknowledged problem or challenge, what you refer to in the book as the challenge of relatedness. So what, what are some of the, the theories that scholars have advanced uh, recently or maybe even further in the past to explain how so much biblical content ended up in the Quran? Yeah, I, I, just before delving into that, I mentioned what I call the riddle of the relatedness. That is that there's a lot of material um, in the Quran which is biblical, but there's also r- remarkable ignorance. So the Quran seems to clearly portray Mary as the as the same person as Miriam of the Old Testament, that is the the sister of Moses and Aaron, um, and uh, in a number of places. And you get strange um, combinations of timing that don't work like Haman who was in the story of Esther is put into as the as an assistant of Pharaoh Um, but how could someone who had been a Christian or even discipled as a Jew not know that um, Jesus was not the nephew of Moses you know how could you not know that Um, and there are other puzzles as well that is most of the biblical material in the Quran is Old Testament but the theology of Islam is much more Christian so um, the teachings about Satan are more similar to the New Testament. 
um, teachings about the afterlife, heaven and hell and judgment and, and intercession for the dead as well. So there's the, that's another puzzle. These puzzles are really problematic. So in the 19th century, a Jewish scholar um, wrote a, a study of, of the borrowings that Muhammad had taken from Judaism. So this has been a, a common view that Muhammad was deeply familiar with Christianity and Judaism, and he borrowed from it. He took these sources in informing his religion. Um, in, in recent times, there's been an emphasis on the community, uh, the Quranic community, and understanding how it could have functioned. And I think a widespread view is that it was influenced by Christianity. So the surahs of the chapters of the Quran are like influenced by Christian liturgy, um, that Muhammad took Christian texts. And I mean, one view is that there were Syriac texts that were sort of just read as if they were Arabic, and that's where the Quran has come from. Um, so there's been a lot of emphasis on the, uh, the, the, the milieu of the late a period of late antiquity and how there was a mixing of ideas and influences um, that, that came to, to shape the Quran. So I, think, I think what there is a consensus, isn't there, that there were Jewish tribes living in the Arabian Peninsula at this time and some Christians or at least trade and cultural connections between Arab Christians in the area, is that right? Yeah, it's very clear that there were there were Jewish uh, groups in uh, in Arabia, and also there were Christians. In fact, certain tribes of Arabs had converted to Christianity. These are more around the margins, closer to the Byzantines, but there was a strong Christian presence. And we have rock inscriptions, Jewish and and Christian rock inscriptions that predate, that are in Arabic that predate um, the the the, uh, the appearance of Islam on the scene. But there's just puzzles abound, you know. Um, the relationship of Islam to idolatry is really unclear. It doesn't, you know, the story. One of the big problems is this, that the story the Quran seems to tell is different from the story that Islamic tradition tells. Islamic tradition, which is the biography of Muhammad and traditions that Muhammad were, that are passed on from what Muhammad did and said, was sort of formalized uh, two or three hundred years after Muhammad. But scholars, the deeper they look into the relationship between the Quran and the Islamic explanation for the Quran, which is, you know, the heart of Islamic faith, uh, the more you see discrepancies between those two. So that's a, that's, you know, it's the, the deeper you go into this puzzle, the more puzzling it becomes. And, and so um, some people have even said in the last 20 years that, that uh, it, it, the scholarship on the Quran is in a kind of chaotic and unclear uh, point of period, point in time, because there are so many conflicting things to explain. I mean, some have said that Muhammad was influenced by Jewish Christianity, by Jews who were followers of Jesus, and that explains the hybrid mixture of Christian and Jewish perspectives. I don't find that compelling, but it's an example of um, how how scholars have, have wrestled with the problems of the origins of the Quran. You know what it really reminds me of, Mark? It, it's the way certain well-attested facts about our universe force you into very creative theories to explain it. So the reason why uh, sort of non-religious scientists have to come up with things like the multiverse or the simulation or a whole bunch of <laughs> mm -hmm. theories that are, that are pretty wild in one sense because they're designed to explain very real, real problems to do with fine-tuning, uh, the relationship between quantum physics and the sort of macro physics and a whole range of things that even go beyond my my little little brain, you know, when the in some ways the 
plethora or variability of answers and their provocativeness or creativeness is a reflection on the scale of the problem. And so there are, as you have just recounted very well, just layer upon layer of perplexing things that are very difficult to describe historically, religiously, theologically, <laughs> even socially and, and politically. And we have enough facts, enough agreed facts with enough gaps and problems and contradictions to spawn something that, is, that seems actually quite, we're, in, we're talking about continuities, but seems quite distinct from what you get in the study of Judaism and Christianity, unless I'm mistaken. I think that's right. There, there, there are not comparable mysteries about the origins of Judaism and Christianity. Um, Christianity arose out of Second Temple Judaism. It's one of the daughters of Judaism, really. It's absolutely clear. It's liturgies, it's structures. And scholars have argued that it actually took a couple of hundred years for Judaism and, and Christianity to separate. One book was called The Ways That Never Parted. Even two or three hundred years after Jesus, Christians were attending synagogue sermons to, to supplement their faith. Then we, we know a lot about the, that separation and how it developed and the, and the sources. And, you know, the New Testament is absolutely steeped with Old Testament ideas and theology in a, in a way that can be traced and understood. It's not mysterious. But, but with Islam, the more you poke it, the more, um, uh, the more unclear it becomes. And, and indeed, in the New Testament itself, you, you see within the first generation of followers of Jesus, uh, difficult uh, social pastoral questions about the precise, the extent to which you have to be Jewish to be a Christianos, follower of the Christos, the Christ, which is a Jewish concept in itself over issues like circumcision and, and dietary laws. So you, immediately, the you know, with the Apostle Paul, the faith spreads out to Gentiles. But then, of course, <laughs> there's this question of, at this stage, it's clearly not so straightforward that you can just be completely non-Jewish and, and a follower. And there were debates over this. So that, I guess, uh, I'm pointing to that as a, as a link of that intimate relationship yes. with Judaism. That genealogy is, is there in the pages in high relief. <laughs> throughout the New Testament. Whereas I suppose in a way the 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 contrast here perhaps is that in the pages of the Quran itself you don't get the explanation of well I guess you get you get one explanation which is the traditional explanation of you know you can assume that any difference presumably is explained by the fact that the Jewish and Christian scriptures are corrupted in some way. And so when the details diverge then you can assume if you accept the authority of the Quran and, and Muhammad, that that is the, the version that corrects the, <laughs> the divergence earlier. Uh, but I guess it's unaware of the intellectual problem uh, we are discussing here. Yes, that's, it, it's true. So the, the, the Muslim scholars would acknowledge there's this, this differences between the Bible and inconsistencies, but their answer is the Bible's corrupted. You know, if you want to know what Jesus taught, read the Quran. That would be the view. Or if you want to know what Moses, the religion of Moses, you want to follow that, read the Quran. As as the Quran says, you know, a true Jew or a true Christian will become a Muslim if they're sincere. And that, that view is deeply held. I think a, a leader of Al-Azhar University said there's two types of Jews and the good ones become Muslims. So that perspective is very, very deeply ingrained in, in, in the Islamic worldview. That's the other answer to this puzzle, <laughs> you know, that 
what what the Quran says is what the Bible originally said. And yes, that, that's the end of it. <laughs> of course. Okay, so your answer to this nexus of problems is that the Quran, I'm just repeating this, the Quran is a creative theological innovation which repurposes biblical lexical and textual materials to serve its own distinctive theological agenda. Now, the, the methodology for getting here is really, really interesting because you draw on your expertise and deep learning as a linguist and you draw out a lot of what I find really helpful conceptual distinctions and one of them that you draw from linguistics is this distinction between inheritance and borrowing in when it comes to language contact and you've drawn an analogy here with theological contact or religious um, contact just as a, an entree into your answer because it's quite sophisticated and we can't just do it quickly uh could you explain the difference in linguistics between inheritance and borrowing and its relevance as you see it to try to unravel this riddle, as you've called it, in Islam yes. and Christianity? Well, the great linguist Ferdinand de Saussure um, pointed out that language is characterized by structure. There are structural relationships between words and you see it in morphology, in syntax. and um, the study of that structure is a core part of the study of linguistics. So when languages change over time, the structure uh, changes gradually. It, it, it's, you can get small additions, and, but, it, but it maintains its structural coherence over time. So, for example, you can take, say, the morphology of the, 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 the rules of formation of words in Italian and trace them back in a continuous development to, to Latin. Um, and indeed, when considering whether languages are related to each other, you know, is English related to German? Well, it is. How do you know? Because you can trace the structure of English grammar and word systems and morphology back to a shared origin, which is called Proto-Germanic. Now, when you have inheritance in languages, there's structural continuity. Um, something is, is retained in the whole system. The system is, is what evolves. But when you have borrowing, you take an element out of one system and you insert it into another. So that means that it, it, it loses a lot. It's, it's broken out of its original context. Its, its meaning, its, its forms are, are reinterpreted. Um, just a trivial example, you know, alcohol, the al in that, I think, is the, originally the, the word for the definite article, the, in Arabic. But in English, it's just part of the word. So what was a, a marker of a structural piece within Arabic grammar has now been lost and it has a completely different function in English. So borrowing characteristically is destructive of structural relationships. And the question then I, then I, I began to ask about the Quran is, if the Quran has developed from the Bible, what is the system or the structure that would be retained in that inheritance relationship? Or if it's been borrowed, what is what has been destroyed? And my my suggestion was that the analogue of linguistic structure, morphology, syntax, semantics, is theology. Theology meaning an interconnected set of ideas that link together and make coherent the, the textual the text of the Quran. And I ask, is biblical theology, has it evolved into Quranic theology, or is Quranic theology rather um, a new creation that that 
opportunistically repurposes biblical elements, but it doesn't show signs of, of um, a, a development over time from a biblical theology. You know, if, to put it another way, if Muhammad had been a disciple of Christianity or Judaism, he should have been formed in a biblical or, or, or Jewish theology that would have somehow showed up in his what he created with Islam. And in making that, that comparison, um, I used a few metaphors to help. One was linguistic, but before I talk about the linguistic metaphor, let me give you another one from building. Um, it, 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 there's two ways in which you can change a church or a synagogue and turn it into a mosque. One is you can paint over it, add an extension. That's a kind of continuity development. The basic structure or system of the building is retained. The other way is just demolish the building and reuse the building materials to, to form a completely different building. And if you did that, someone could come along and see, oh yeah, I recognize that. That's from the church. Oh, there's another bit. That, oh, that's from the synagogue. Um, but the structural relationships of those parts in the building bear no connection to their original um, placement. Uh, so the lintel over the door might be a, a post somewhere else. In fact, there are mosques uh, that in which the pillars are all of different sizes in the mosque because they've been taken from a wide variety of different churches. So my question then is, is, is Islam an extension of a church or synagogue or is it rather a whole new thing built out of materials that have been taken? And then I use um, a linguistic analogy. And the, the problem is, I mean, this conceptual problem is there's just so much biblical material in the Quran. I mean, the most frequently mentioned person in the Quran, I think 136 times, is Moses. And the next is um, Abraham. Muhammad is mentioned by name just four times in the Quran. So what, what is all this material? And I use the analogy of what are called Creole languages. So let me give you an example is Haitian Creole. It's a French-based Creole in the sense that um, its, its vocabulary comes from French. It arose in the slave plantations of Haiti, where Africans from different tribes in West Africa were put together and they began to speak the language of their masters, which became Haitian Creole. But what's really interesting about Haitian Creole and other Creoles as well, like Tokpisan in Papua New Guinea, is that their grammar and their sound system, their morphology, their structure is like the languages that, 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 of, of the um, workers in the plantation. So the, the grammar of Haitian Creole is like West African languages. So you could translate Haitian Creole like form for form into some of those West African languages. Um, but the lexicon has been taken from French. So there's been this vast borrowing from French to create Haitian Creole. But its grammar, its worldview, it's in heart, its heartbeat, if you like, is purely West African. And the terms that are used for that is that the substrate are the West African languages and the superstrate is French. And you get a kind of marrying of these two together. The, 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 the deceptive thing about this is that when a French speaker encounters Haitian Creole, they tend to think of it as a kind of degraded form of French. It's kind of odd French. And just as Tokpisin, feels like pidgin English, you know, a form of English. Um, and I think that's what Christians and Jews have seen when they've encountered Islam. They say, oh, this is Christianity or, or Judaism, but sort of distorted. But actually, 
from a linguistic point of view, Haitian Creole is not considered to be a variety of French. It's not, it's not a, one of the Romance languages descended from Latin. It's a, it's a, it's a whole new creation. It's a, um, and the, the linguistic contact is you've got the language of the masters and the language of the plantation workers has come into contact and it's produced in the children of those plantation workers. It's produced a whole new language. Um, this has happened again and again in different places around the world. So I said, maybe Islam is a Creole religion which has repurposed elements from Judaism and Christianity, um, but its actual theology is different. It hasn't inherited the system, which is the theology of Judaism and Christianity. So then I said, let's identify a number of key doctrines or teachings of the Bible and ask what happened to those in the Quran or look at elements in the Quran which are connected to the Bible and say, do these have any biblical theology left, you know, or, or, or has it been completely reconstructed? It's, um, I think early in the book, I used this quote from Wittgenstein. He was speaking about logical formula, I think. And he said that you think you're tracing the shape of reality over and over again, but all you're doing is tracing the shape of the window through which you're looking. And my, my, in, my intuition was that Western scholars uh, based in a kind of Christian and Jewish tradition have looked at Islam and they've traced the shape of Christianity over it again and again and again, but without actually seeing it properly. So that's that's what I set out to do in the, in the book. That's really uh, fascinating. It's just an amazing <laughs> application of linguistics uh, to religious studies. So as I understand this, if we were looking at inheritance, then you would expect to see structural continuity and affinity, which you argue we don't, and we'll, we'll get on to the structural discontinuity. If it's borrowing, um, then you, you would expect to see continuity in one sense, but structural uh, discontinuity. And then to put this creolization uh, lens over the, the top of that, what, what we might be looking at, certainly from a, well, not even a Christian or Jewish perspective, but a religious scholar should be able to uh, see this potentially too, is we're seeing a religion that is structurally different from Christianity and Judaism, but which has a shared vocabulary. Well, that, that, that is, is that a fair way of translating the creolization? So it's what, what fools, what, what leads Christians, Jews, non-religious scholars to see family relationship, I'm just thinking about your Haitian Creole analogy here, is they see lots of Jewish and Christian vocabulary and they say, well, this these must be related languages, aka religions. But what you're saying is just like Haitian Creole, just like that in linguistic terms cannot be classed as a Romance language descended from, from Latin because it's grammar, morphology, its whole structure is West African. Uh, here, there's a West African element to Islam, if you like, that yes. is not the substrate of Christianity or Judaism. That's right. And there's a shared vocabulary, but the words actually all mean different things. Okay, yeah. Because they're set into a, new, a different system. And just out of interest, is that, I imagine there would be a, a degree of that in Creole languages Absolutely. too, wouldn't there? So there'd be, there, there must be a lot of false friends for French speakers, I'm guessing, when they come to... Um, Haitian Creole and they that's see the true. same French word written probably the same way but it's probably taken on whether that's 
because of the influence of the substrate West African languages or just semantic change over time, which we all know. That's right. There'd be lots of things that actually mean differently from what they think it means. It's not, it's been absorbed into a different set of relationships in the language. And so their, their interpretation of the meaning is, will, will make that same error. It'll be tracing the frame of something that's actually not, not, not there. So yeah, there'll be misinterpretation a lot. Okay. Let's give listeners some examples. So we get to I think we need at this point some specific illustrations of what we're talking about. I knew there are many in the book and in particular there are there are two very interesting I think it would be fair to call them theological doctrines that prima facie are found in both Islam and Christianity slash Judaism, which then speak to the or are suggestive of continuity but you you have made an argument for the fact that whilst there are sort of uh, superficial if you like similarities there are actually important structural differences or theological differences so the first one just looking at my sheet here is monotheism could you talk a little bit about the divergences or the structural differences underpinning the monotheism of the Hebrew scriptures and the Bible. Yes. I think when you look at monotheism, you need to ask, what does the monotheism do? How does it function within the system? Uh, this is a structural question. Um, and the in the in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, monotheism is a doctrine that evolves. So early on, um, its key emphasis is you shall have no other gods before me. It doesn't actually deny the existence of other gods. In fact, there's numbers of references in the earlier part of the Hebrew scriptures that refer to the other gods in the Psalms. But it's a covenantal exclusive allegiance that's demanded of Israel. So you shall have no other gods before me. I will be your God and you will be in relationship with me as your as your sovereign, really. And then later we see in the later prophets the... Um, the idea that other gods don't exist. But the the key concept really of monotheism in the Hebrew scriptures in the Bible is uh, exclusive allegiance to the one God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, um, the Quran has picked up the idea that there's only one God, but the, the function of that is very different. And the oppositions, the contrasts involved in it are very different as well. Um, so it's, it's used as a rejection of polytheism, yes. But the most interesting thing about monotheism is the, the emphases that the Quran makes when it puts the doctrine forward. So one of the emphases is the concept of shirk. Um, shirk is, uh, it's a noun, it, it refers to financial partnership and particularly the idea of um, two people owning something in common. It refers to the concept of a partnership. So uh, the Quran strongly objects to anyone attributing partnership to Allah. That is that Allah would have a co-owner of anything, that there's someone else that created the world alongside Allah. So they, the Quran rejects Christianity because it says that Jesus, who's a prophet of Islam, according to the Quran, has been made into a partner with Allah, a co-owner of the world. And there's discussions of this in the Quran. For example, it says that, you know, if there were two gods, they'd fight each other over the world. I think the analogy in the person's mind is that of a slave owner. So Allah, Allah's relationship to the world is that of a master to a slave. 
And the Quran says, imagine a slave with two masters. They'd be the most miserable person in the world because you know, obviously they'd have conflicting commands. So if you had two gods, they'd fight each other and, and the world would be destroyed. Now, this sort of reasoning and even the concept of shirk, of, of the rejection of, of co-ownership, it's just not in the Bible at all. It's not a, it's not a consideration at all. Um, it's interesting, you know, Jesus told a parable, you know, that, that a slave, it's wrong to have two masters. Um, but the, the, the focus of his parable is you should be solely devoted to God and not to money or other things. You should have unique, you know, sole allegiance to God. But the Quran, when it raises this parable, it tells it as a, as a story to show how miserable it would be if you had two masters and how the world would be destroyed. So logically, it's not possible. Um, so this is a really big uh, core part of the teaching of, of Tawhid or monotheism in Islam, that Allah cannot be said to have any partners. It actually goes against the Bible because um, in the New Testament and in, in the Hebrew Scriptures too, there's a lot of emphasis about partnership and relationship with God, you know, becoming sons of God. Um, the Hebrew Scriptures calls Israel my son. And you have relational attributes, you know, and also in, in the Bible, uh, it says that the people of Israel should be holy because God is holy. You should be like God. But Islam completely rejects any that anything is like God. Um, another Arab concept that's that's introduced into the discussions about monotheism in the Quran is that of um, uh, the protege uh, relationship, the client protege, you know, uh, and client relationship and this is very big in Arab tribal society that you, you your your safety your identity was determined by who looked after you and and basically it's it, it's called a wali the your protector or guardian and um the Quran basically says you have no other guardian but Allah so it, what the Quran does is it, is it gets this idea of one god but or how do I interpret that and it pulls concepts out of Arab out of the Arab language and culture of guardianship, of, these are power relationships, of ownership relationships, and it constructs a doctrine of the unity of God based on these concepts, none of which is found in the Bible. So it, 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 as you really, if you understand biblical theology of monotheism, which is, it, it, you know, that, that's complex. You have to understand it has a history and it develops, um, and you compare it to the Quran's own theology, there's just almost nothing in common, apart from the idea of one God. But that idea of one God is just a little element that's been set in a completely different context. So that's why I'd say that monotheism in the Quran and monotheism in the Bible are not structurally related. So that's evidence of borrowing, not of inheritance. That's really fascinating because in my work in counterterrorism and also, also in scholarship, looking at contemporary jihadist thought and theology, Tawhid, which is often translated oneness, but this is the Arabic concept of that gets related to monotheism is not only so central, but it's a, it's a driver and, and core rationale of jihadist violence. And, and I raise this again as a contrast of its function and importance in Christianity, possibly because it's, it's uh, if you like, complicated by the whole concept of the Trinity, so the three in, in one. We don't need to go into those debates, but... It has a very different function. I'm talking about jihadists here, but I'm I'm saying this is this is one one integral idea in their violence because this issue of shirk of associating anything from Allah 
is given a very expansive and, and permissive interpretation. And it's so important that you would kill uh, a Sufi or a, some kind of Muslim heretic or have a certain view of Christians who are guilty of shirk because of the the Trinity. And so you, you see uh, you see in the socio-political, theological and in the practices of some, not all Muslims, that has to be admitted. Again, that speaks to uh, a kind of structural difference <laughs> where it has a different kind of effect in in the way the faith is interpreted and lived even in the contemporary world yes uh, the the jihadists object to democracy because democracy is shirk it's shirk because people make laws in a democracy but in the islamic perspective that's an attribute of allah to make laws so what you're doing is you're attributing partnership between god and humanity in the area of lawmaking you're giving something that only belongs to Allah, to people. So that is shirk. And the Quran says that shirk is the only unforgivable sin. Uh, so democracy is um, to be opposed. And um, after 9-11, one of the um, uh, fatwas I discovered on a, on a website in, in Melbourne was um, uh, a fatwa by a medieval um, Muslim called Ibn Kathir. And he, he gave a fatwa against Genghis Khan because he was ruling by... I don't know, Mongol laws and not Sharia. And he said, anyone can kill Genghis Khan because he's not ruling by Sharia. And at the end of the fatwa, it said, and this fatwa is still open by to against everyone who doesn't rule by Sharia. You know, <laughs> uh, you could have written in John Howard's name, I suppose, at that time. I read it, I thought, well, this is pretty grim. You know, uh, this group is fundamentally opposed to democracy. And in principle, they have put up stuff on a website saying that if, you, if you're a Democrat, you are you come under penalty of death, so the the force of that the theology is really important, and the theology drives that, and I think biblical theology of the oneness of God doesn't lead to that conclusion because its its theology is very different, um, and the whole concept of politics and th the relationship between politics and theology is very different in in the biblical tradition precisely because the doctrine of God is very different, and of course in the Christian contract context you could throw in the incarnation which seems to go in the complete opposite direction of the strict oneness yeah. <laughs> uh emphasis in uh islam and listeners could uh won't need to do much work to guess why that would be highly problematic under this doctrine of tawhid so mark the the second theological doctrine you look at is a what you call a doctrine of prophets which might not be so familiar with christians and jews although clearly prophets loom large we've got prophetic literature and there's a anyone with a passing familiarity with the old testament will know how central prophets are to both of those faiths but in the context of islam there is a term rasulology because rasul is the word for prophet or i mean it comes from the root for message messenger could you again talk us through in the same way we did with monotheism the structural disparities divergences sure so um it's interesting you know muhammad is called the prophet and in fact many western scholars just call him the prophet even i mean jews jewish scholars wouldn't call jesus the messiah but it's interesting how we've taken a biblical term and use it so freely to refer to muhammad so there are two words in the Arabic. One is Nabi, which is um, a version of prophet, borrowed probably from Hebrew. But the other is Rasul, which probably means something like an ambassador or a messenger. And uh, it is the, the main title of Muhammad. When, when Muslims confess faith in Islam, they say Muhammad is the Rasul of Allah. Um, so the biblical concept of prophethood is this, that 
or a prophet. Prophet is someone who receives a word from God and then presents it to somebody else. And when they present it, it's as if God was speaking to that person. And really, that's about as simple as it is. That's the Hebrew concept of a, of a prophet. And prophets could be men, they could be women, they could just prophesy once. Um, if they're called prophets sociologically, they've got an ongoing relationship uh, to this kind of way of functioning. But individuals who are not considered prophets sometimes prophesy, they sometimes do this. The message could be quite mundane, it could be massive, it could be to a nation, it could be to a particular individual. Um, it's it's just it's basically that just receiving a message giving it to somebody else and it's as if god was speaking to you on the other hand in the quran the concept of the rasul and people like moses and abraham and jesus are considered to be messengers of allah like muhammad is very elaborate um and it, basically it's this scenario a rasul of allah is someone who's sent to a particular people or a city warning them of future destruction and asking them to repent and to pay attention to the signs of Allah, uh, which are being sent to cause them to be mindful of future judgment and destruction. And then the people reject the messenger and Allah rescues the messenger and destroys the people. That is what a Quranic Rasul is, uh, someone with a very specific commission. And, and the concept of prophecy is actually not in the Quran. There's no word for prophesy in, in Arabic. Um, there is a kind of theory for how the message gets to the to the messenger and how it's given, but the concept of like what we call in linguistics of a speech act of prophesying doesn't exist in the Quran. So you've got this idea that someone gets messengers from God for people, but it's completely repackaged. And actually the word Nabi uh, is just another version of Rasul. So, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very different understanding. And the way it functions in the Quran is that Muhammad, the messenger, who's who has this function, like he comes to his people and he said, you'll be destroyed if you don't repent. And the rest of the Quran just rolls through this 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 story. And eventually the, the opponents are destroyed at the hands of, the, of Muhammad and his followers. But this story is being validated all the time by Muhammad in the Quran telling stories of past messengers. And all those stories in the Quran of Joseph and Moses and, and the other prophets, they all rehearse this, this, this scenario. Someone sent preaching judgment, rejected, rescued, destroyed, and so on. So that's a Rasul. It's, it's, it's so specific and elaborated, and it supports the theology of the Quran. It's, it's very different. And, you know, there are, um, there are many, many people in, in the Bible who are not who could never be considered a Quranic Rasul, but who prophesy and function as prophets, because it's a, it's a very different function. I mean, the Quran believes that Moses was sent to Pharaoh to warn the Egyptians of, the, of imminent destruction, for example, or Jesus was sent to the Jews to, to warn them of destruction. Um, so it, yeah, it's a very different view of, uh, of what, of, of what a, a a prophet or a messenger of Allah is. But the challenge is that when, when Christians look at this prophet language in the Quran, they think prophet in the Bible, but it isn't. It's something quite different, something disconnected from the, from the origin. So monotheism and prophethood slash Russellology are two examples of theological doctrines that have, if you like, conceptual similarities, but structural very significant 
structural differences that give them really very different functions in, in the faith, which starts to build a picture of uh, faiths that really are quite distinct. That's where we're kind of heading. But the other thing you do is you, you run through, I think, up to eight uh, lexical examples, which I, I take to be in terms of distinguishing them from the doctrines, is that here we're really honing in on specific concepts, vocabulary terms that are the same, but sitting under them uh, also have discernibly different uh, structural characteristics and one that is very interesting that you deal with in the book is the Holy Spirit. Could you talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit? So there's a, these terms both appear <laughs> in the respective scriptures. What are the sort of structural divergences here? So in the Arabic, the, the, the expression Ruh al-Qudus, which probably should be glossed Spirit of Holiness, it seems to have been borrowed from Syriac, a very similar sound sequence of sounds that's taken into Arabic. So it's sort of matched to the original sound. Um, and it's very clearly used in the Quran to refer to an angel, the angel Gabriel, Jibril, as he's called. Uh, so how does a word for the Holy Spirit or God end up being a title for Jibril in the Quran? What's happening there? Well, I think it actually centers around the the story of the Annunciation to Mary um, that she's going to bear a child. So it says, you know, the angel Gabriel in, in, in Luke's Gospel says you'll, you'll conceive by the Holy Spirit. And the way this is interpreted um, in, the, in the Quran, which a similar story is told, is that the angel Gabriel appears and then um, he's called the Holy Spirit. You know, he is the one who is the Holy Spirit. And uh, that that reference is kind of re is attached to him, and it actually in one version says he blows into her vulva, and she she conceives Jesus by by virtue of this act. Now, as I was looking at this expression ruh al kadus, um, I was wondering about the word ruh. And in in Hebrew, ruach, um, which is the the word spirit, can mean breath or wind and spirit. And the connection between breath and spirit uh, is that um, when someone dies, the last thing they often you, you often see happen is the exhalation of their last breath. And the idea then develops in Hebrew thought that the breath of the person is their spirit, like it's a connection between them. And so when God creates human beings, he breathes the spirit of life into them. So they begin to breathe and then when they die, the breath is exhaled. So the spirit leaves them. Now, what I, uh, what I was wondering is, what about the, the Hebrew word, sorry, the, the Arabic word, ruh? What does that actually mean? Well, it turns out in pre-Islamic poetry, it could refer to wind. The wind is a ruh or rih. And, um, but it also refers to blowing, like um, blowing up um, a, a skin in which you might st store wine or something. It's, or blowing on a fire to stir it up. But there's no use of this word in Arabic to refer to the breath, breathing. Another word is used for that, uh, which is also um, actually used for spirit, has a spirit meaning. But there's no conceptual link in Arabic between this blowing word and, um, and the concept of spirit. So actually, I think Ruh al-Qudus, if you look at pre-Arabic, um, pre-Quranic Arabic, it probably means a wind of holiness or, or blowing of holiness. And I think that's why 
you have this in the story you have the angel gabriel who's called the this wind of holiness or this breath of holiness you see him blowing into into mary as well so what's happened is that, that a phrase a particular sequence of sounds that's been taken from syriac which is the word for the holy spirit in syriac gets churned, changed into Ruha Kudus. And although there isn't the semantic kind of justification in Arabic for referring to using Ruh to refer to a spirit, it becomes the title for the angel Jibril. And um, it's really interesting. I've read websites that say, you know, how to convert a Christian to Islam. You convince them that you only worship the same God, that Jesus is a, is a prophet of Islam. And that you can still have the Ruh al-Qudus, you still have the Holy Spirit when you become a, become a Muslim. But it's an example of how a, a, a really central and important concept in the Bible of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, becomes attached to the angel Jibril through a misreading or mishearing of the story uh, of, uh, of Luke, of the Annunciation. And so I was, I was, in the book, I was just really making the argument very strongly that this refers to Jibril and it's a complete repurposing of a, of a central biblical theological point and it's a repurposing it to fit uh, with, um, within Islam's uh, angelology. So back to our, I was going to say linguistic analogy, but this is not analogy, this is linguistic, linguistic analysis of the Quran. This is clear evidence of borrowing. It is not inheritance, and so we have a term taken directly—a term that doesn't really exist, at least not with that semantic function in Arabic. That's taken from another language, in this case Syriac, which has a has a which which has the referent of the Holy Spirit in the sort of biblical scriptures, and it's given a completely different meaning that is completely disconnected and thus discontinuous. Uh, even though it, it's kind of superficially the <laughs> the same term, and there are many such terms in the in the Quran, uh, some of which you analyze in the book. So what we have, which is really interesting, and this really speaks to the fecundity of your the linguistic lens through which you approach the central question we began with: how do we explain <laughs> the presence of so much biblical material in the Quran? You can you can see it operating at both the doctrinal slash theological level but also the conceptual linguistic linguistic level and if you if you put these all two together you start to see a pattern that looks like borrowing in contrast to inheritance hence your creolization theory that's that's right and in order to make this argument you need to have a model of the theology of the quran because you need to know how things are functioning within the system. If you haven't described the system of the Quran, you can't compare it with the system of the Bible. And one of the challenges for the field is that many of those that have worked on the Quran don't have a working model of the theology of the Quran. They're not trained theologically, and they don't also have a working model of the theology of the Bible. Um, so they've been dealing with kind of systems that they don't discern because their focus is on more literary history or philological concern with individual words not looking at how they they fit into a into a whole system well that naturally begs the question uh mark what is a a nice neat succinct description of the theology of the quran yeah so um the the, the essence in the bible of the question of god and humanity is that human beings well made in the image of god and in a sense reflecting the glory of god are plagued by sin 
and there's a breach in relationship with God which needs to be restored. And this is this this basic problem is laid out in Genesis in the first chapters of Genesis. In Islam, there's a different anthropology. Um, the, the Islamic view of the human person is that the human is made by Allah to be a slave, but is inherently weak and easily led astray. So what they need is right guidance. And um, this right guidance is, is, is brought through the messengers of Allah. And if they receive right guidance, they will be successful. So um, the call to prayer, which rings out from the minaret, includes a phrase, come to success, come to success. Islam promises success. And you can't understand the Islamic awakening in the world today without understanding that principle. Um, so ignorance is the, is the problem uh, and easily led astray. The solution is guidance through a messenger of Allah, of which Muhammad was the last and the final one, the seal of all messengers. Um, and the result is success in the world. <laughs> Whereas the Christian the biblical, Christian reading of the Bible is the problem of sin. The solution is forgiveness and the result is salvation and restored relationship. Uh, just to give you an example of how that works out, in the story of Joseph in the Quran, it's quite elaborate. Um, Joseph is being tempted by the figure we know in the Bible as Potiphar's wife to have sex. And he refuses to do that. And he says it's because he doesn't want to become one of the ignorant. Because to do that would be to lapse into this state of ignorance of the, of the commands of Allah. That's an example of a, of a theological repurposing. So that his story begins is used to validate the basic Quranic view of the human person. Um, I mean, Islam then goes on to say that um, Allah sent many messengers and you should listen to the messenger, obey what they say ultimately, and then you'll be rightly guided and then you'll ultimately end up in paradise if, if Allah is gracious to you. That's fascinating. This all brings us to the million dollar question and you don't characterize it like that, but you do in your final chapter acknowledge that if a listener accepted your creolization the thesis and flowing from that that islam is a theological innovation from the jewish christian tradition and therefore doesn't belong in the same family tree in the same way that christianity you could draw a line from sec second temple judaism to christianity you can't draw a line from either to islam that's your your basic uh, thesis should a listener accept all that then the obvious question, again, sticking with the linguistic analogy, is what on earth is the substrate of Islam? Where has, what are the ideas, what is the culture, what are the practices, what is the worldview, the concepts and conceptions that have done the repurposing, if I could put it that way, of the theological vocabulary and ideas and concepts that have been borrowed rather than inherited? Now, you, you note that this is a, a very difficult uh, problem to crack, but I feel like we can't finish the conversation with at least, without at least acknowledging that that is the the big, like I say, multi-million dollar question and a fascinating one at that. I know you can't answer that and your book doesn't purport to answer that. That's, that's a question you ask at the end that, that arises from the work you've done, but you do say a little bit about it. Um, what do you have any ideas? Do you care to speculate? Yeah, it's interesting to compare it with voodoo, which is very clear that the substrate is West African religion. And that kind of polytheistic faith is 
reformed in voodoo using names of angels and you know saints and so on and, and giving a kind of christian using christian bits and pieces so that's very clear um the 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 issue with islam is more complex i don't think you could say that it's it's a that the substrate is a particular form of arabian idolatry that doesn't work we we don't really know enough about um a pagan arabian religion to be able to develop that argument but uh, what i what i do see is um there is a lot of Arab culture that, that ends up in the theology of the Quran. Like the, 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 the culture of raiding becomes part of the culture of jihad um, and the theology of jihad. And you get these um, power relations within uh, Arabic culture, like the idea of the wali, of the, of the protege and the, you know, the guardian. Um, this this is projected into the theology or, or shirk. You know, you're taking categories from Arabic culture and and elevating them into the theological grid. Um, so I think that the the evidence seems to be that some of the theological developments come out of the the life experience of the messenger and his community, the Quranic community. Um, you see this particularly in the second part of the Quran where. He becomes a cult leader. You know, he becomes a very powerful, dominant figure in everyone's lives, and and controls their lives in great detail. Um, that's that's clearly, I think, arising from the internal dynamics within the community. So there's, um, you could say, some of it comes from his psychology, perhaps, um, ideas of uh, atonement or retribution, punishment, um, are, are brought into the Quran. I think from from the culture, the the example of the Rasul, I think I think what he's taken there is um, there's been stories of of peoples that have been wiped out through prophetic messages, and the person has used their reason to extrapolate uh, the office of the Rasul. I mean, he's it's obviously influenced by the idea of an ambassador. There's some people sending messengers, um, so I, I think some of it's a combination of human reasoning. Uh, and uh, also Arab culture and um, combined with half heard bits and pieces <laughs> you know I think what's clear is that there was a lot of st biblical material circulating in that environment one interesting things about the the linguistic contact dynamics where you get a creole emerging is that it takes place where there's a lot of uprooting of people and being thrown together in new contexts and something new emerges so what I haven't explored in the book, but I'd be interested to look at is whether there was a, a similar disruption or movement um, that could be the cause of it. I mean, in Haitian Creole, it's the injection of people from West Africa into a Francophone environment. So could there be an injection of a, of a group of people with a sort of sectarian outlook uh, into a Christian or, or Jewish environment where they've been able to adapt bits and pieces from what they've heard um, a milieu, if you like, um, and but but without comprehending those elements. So I mean, there is a story of migration in the Quran that in the, there's a crisis in the in the Quranic community and they move to another place. Um, I actually found it really difficult in this project because the temptation is to come up with specific scenarios, but there's a danger in doing that when you're dealing with what we don't know. <laughs> You know, you can fill in gaps that shouldn't be filled in. Um, I mean, one tempting scenario is that there was a Quranic community which predated Muhammad, the historical Muhammad, which produced this remarkable text. 
and later developments in, in the Arab world and political developments, military developments, uh, was associated with a leader who somehow got attached to this text, this Quranic text. There's some potential evidence that the Quran, some of the manuscripts of the Quran, the actual parchment are predated well before Muhammad. Um, and the, the number of very early manuscripts is sort of troublingly early. So if that was the case, that, that there was a, a community that predated Muhammad uh, and it was then attached to Muhammad, um, it's possible that, uh, you know, you, you have to kind of completely rethink um, the idea of where and how this community could have developed in order to answer that question. But short answer, I think it's a combination of rational assumptions about God and how, what God would be like. It's drawing on metaphors from Arab culture, such as the master-slave relationship is a huge driver of Quranic theology, uh, plus um, cultural constructs like the idea of shirk and of the wali, the partnership-guardianship relationship. So I think those things have been pulled together to make to make a whole. I want to finish with this question, which actually brings us back into, I was going to say the real world, but I mean, we we're talking about the, the real world and very significant historical developments and social religious communities today, obviously. I want to talk about uh, the implications of your thesis in the first instance for interfaith dialogue, but also I'm, I'm thinking just in, in terms of the, the Western multicultural pluralistic uh, setting. Uh, the reason I bring in the interfaith, and I've had some exposure to this, maybe you have to Mark, I've been on both ends of the spectrum. I've, I've been doing counter-terrorism with a lot of Muslims, mind you. I've been to, in CIA meetings with women wearing hijabs and uh, a lot of people in the West don't realise how many Muslims actually work in <laughs> counter-terrorism. I mean, where do people think we get all the linguists? And there's a lot of work with communities. And of course, I've discussed, you know, I I, I was taken to Peshawar with the infamous Pakistani intelligence agency that created the Taliban to go down there and talk about countering the Taliban. <laughs> so I've, I've discussed this topic with many Muslims all over the, the planet, but I've also done interfaith dialogue, specifically looking at trying to, particularly as Christians and Muslim scholars, theologians, get to know each other's faiths, build concrete relationships, build understanding. So clearly everything you've said is unacceptable to a believing Muslim because they're going, they already have the explanation for what for you and me is an intellectual, historical, social problem. That is, of course, there are, there are similarities, but divergences because <laughs> the prior revelations were Muslim revelations or messengers and they were corrupted, not by the messengers themselves. It wasn't Jesus or Abraham that corrupted the message. It was the the followers and so that explains the difference that's one thing not that that i've never seen that actually come out in interfaith dialogue mind you but your your whole thesis is that these are not, these are quite distinct religions so you're 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 challenging that very notion of where, where we began of abrahamic faiths which seems to be a presupposition of interfaith dialogue not that that has to be i mean you could have hindu jewish interfaith dialogue. I mean, do you have any idea on what the implications might be for interfaith dialogue if 
say, a group of Christians or Jews went into the dialogue <laughs> convinced by your book? I think uh, there'd be better understanding of each other, potentially. I mean, one of the challenges is that Muslims come to this task of interfaith dialogue with a, a prepackaged view of what Christianity and Judaism is, and they bring the frame. It's like they bring the bat and the ball and the wickets and they say, let's play. <laughs> and it's, or they bring the dice and they say, let's play. Uh, and Christians generally accept that frame. They say, okay, we're Abrahamic faiths. We worship the same God. We both reference the prophets and, and we honor the prophet Muhammad and off they go, you know. But um, that's, that bridge is a bridge designed to lead into Islam, not, 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 not the other way. And you can't build your house on a bridge, you know. So to build even relationships between Islam and Christianity based on Islam's model of the, of the two faiths is fundamentally flawed and will, won't produce good results. In fact, it can be dangerous. An example, there was a time about 15 years ago in Melbourne when um, there was a, a, a public, I can't remember the crisis, but there was a need to make a statement of compassion and and um, care. Uh, and the, the Christians of Victoria met with the Muslims and were wanting to make a, a, a public statement. And so the Christians wanted to say, you know, we should so respect the dignity of the human person because everyone is made in the image of God. And the Muslims wouldn't have a bar of it. So they produced a statement, a joint statement with the Muslim leaders of encouraging compassion and grace and so on. But they ob obliterated their own theological foundations. The, the Christians were not willing, didn't manage to, to stick to their doctrine. And they actually allowed their their public statement to be Islam Islamicized and became an Islamic statement. Uh, and I think that's quite dangerous and, and naive. I think if Christians and Jews um, and Muslims, if, if Christians understood Islam better, they'd be able to engage at, at deeper levels. For example, they could talk about the, the, the Christian doctrine of sin more effectively because they'd understand that um, Islam doesn't actually have that doctrine. It has a different concept of sin and um, they could also present Christ more effectively because they could um, distinguish between an Islamic view of, of Jesus as a messenger of Allah and, and what the Bible says. Um, one of the challenges with Islam is that Muslims will imply that if you don't accept their frame, you're being disrespectful. Um, I had a conversation with a Muslim and he was kind of, he knew I knew a lot about Islam. He said, so, so you don't accept that Muhammad's a prophet? I said, no, I don't. He just looked horrified, you know. It was like, th this was beyond the pale for him. <laughs> Whereas I think very often Christians come under pressure in those dialogues to speak about the prophet Muhammad. And I don't think they mean always to say that they actually believe he was a prophet. Some of them do. And there've been Christians that have said that, but but it sends a message to the Muslims that you actually accept Islam's claims, that you believe that he's the final prophet. Um, and I think that's deceptive. It's very difficult to have an equal dialogue when one side comes with a very elaborate model for how this dialogue should work and what Christianity teaches. But the other side, the Christians come out of ignorance mm. to Islam and the assumption that Islam is just some bolderized version of Christianity. So I really hope that Christians would take these issues on board and be more effective in their dialogues, be able to explain 
principles of divergence, which are really important for us in, in the way we live together. I mean, ultimately, this is important for politics because as you have growing minorities in Europe of Muslims, they will, they will be looking for more Sharia consistent outworkings of politics. Um, they won't be happy with the separation of powers that exists in many Western nations because Islam consolidates power into one office. They'll want Islam to be respected. Um, they will push for um, religious pluralism, for political, you know, for different laws for different groups because Islam expects that. Um, and if, if, if non-Muslim interlocutors aren't aware of the, the theological drivers of those outcomes and the significance of them and how profoundly different a society you will produce if you have legal pluralism, for example, they may well go down that track naively and not understanding where it ends up and the consequences that could result. Um, so I think I've been really motivated to try and equip the church to have a sensible, good dialogue. I believe in interfaith dialogue. It's useless if you've got the most liberal on both sides talking to each other. <laughs> but to get serious believers on both sides talking to each other, the onus really is on the Christians to skill up, to understand how Islam see Christianity, which is one thing, and also to understand Islam for its in its own terms as well. What, what, what is the Islamic view of the human person? What is the, the basic structure of Islam's message? Until you got that, the dialogue will be frustrating. It'll be dancing around an unknown object without ever looking at the object. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, it's tricky too, because in Islam's model of da'wah, that is the presentation of Islam to the West, interfaith dialogue is a key component. So when Muslims enter into that, most Muslims, they understand that they're there to present an Islamic worldview, to transform society around them into an Islamic frame. Um, Christians are more naive often. They mm. don't come, they don't see um, the purpose of the dialogue in, the, in those terms. So that's, that's, another, that's another challenge as well. Yeah, I agree with much of that. And it, it um, accords with my experience. I would add one nuance which just occurred to me as you're, you're talking that I think you're absolutely right that one asymmetry here is that Muslims have all have a view of Christianity because their faith has a view of Christianity. But you could be you could be a, a completely illiterate theologian, an expert on on the Trinity, and know nothing about Islam, true? Because there is nothing in your study of the Trinity, <laughs> and over the the two thousand year tradition that's really going to deal with Islam, because this Islam is not known to the <laughs> that tradition, because this is a timing, it's a, a sequencing thing. The nuance is that that frame, as you mentioned it, is wrong about Christians. So it's not only wrong, but it, it's actually quite shallow once you start doing the work of dialogue. And I've had the experience of seeing Muslims completely shocked that when they come to the realization they really know nothing about Christianity, once they actually start hearing Christians talk about the Trinity, the Incarnation, the way they interpret their scriptures, because that view is not formed through a study of True. the biblical text and the 2,000-year-old theological um, tradition. So there is most definitely an asymmetry. And that asymmetry, I think, does often have the, the effect that you have cited, Mark, which is it, the, the temptation then is of Christians of goodwill. And often you've got people on both sides of good goodwill. If the, if the Muslims are saying, well, yes, you know, we, we, 
we both love Jesus, then then immediately it puts you into a kind of mindset that might make you de-emphasize <laughs> the complete differences that, that make those two views mutually incompatible. But if you have Christians who are, who are willing to kind of just articulate their faith seriously, and I go to your point about how you know they've got to have some serious theology there, then I, I find that the it is actually pretty easy to open the eyes of the Muslims. I'm not saying that, that it challenges their view per se, but to, if you like, give them a, a much richer view of Christianity that I'm sure when they go away will make them think, you know, that it's not exactly what, yes. <laughs> what I think it is. So to just give one concrete example, I had had the experience where we, we had a dialogue between Christian and Muslim academics. And it was fascinating because it was on the interpretation of our religious texts. So we had some biblical scholars and some scholars of the Quran there. And the Muslims were utterly shocked at the complexity and the debates of <laughs> sort of debates about how to interpret the, the Bible and just the complexity of the canon and the different books and the different genres and the different authors and all kinds of crazy methods. You've got high criticism. You've got got this. Whereas they they were taking a much more, um, I would say naive, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but just in terms of the this is the word of God, mm. and the the only thing to to work out is what it means and what it means for us uh, today. Whereas Christians, as as you know, and I, I mean, we've got everything from fundamentalists to sort of high criticism, but they're at least the I mean, you know what I'm talking about, and many listeners will know what, I talk, what I'm talking about. And that, that was a really fascinating experience. I mean, we did the wrap-up at, at the end. That sort of came out as a, hmm. as a um, theme, that, that there are, even, even aside from all the, the ostensible convergences in vocabulary and ideas, the entire way of reading these scriptures is radically yes. different. And there are many reasons for that, you know, Quranic, studies in the west is kind of in its infancy compared to christianity which has been pulled apart and tugged in every direction mm-hmm. for what 150 to 200 years now and so again if anything like you i i've profited from these experiences and i find it fascinating uh talking to to muslims and if you want to know any faith at some point you've got to start talking to the the, the believers because as i'm sure you've experienced um Sometime, you know, people are never never as consistent or clear as text <laughs> because there's an interpretive function mm-hmm. that that goes on. And I've had I've had bizarre experiences just by way of illustrating that. The the most bizarre one I was in Germany actually in Berlin looking at Islamist extremism across Germany. And I had a meeting set up in a cafe with a young Turkish German who was the spokeswoman for the largest network of Turkish speaking mosques in Germany and I she didn't she was well doing the interview in German I had a an interpreter from the Australian embassy she was wearing a hijab she was conservatively dressed with the long sleeves and a sort of um not sort of traditional Turkish clothing but I could tell my my initial impression was this person is very devout well halfway through our discussion of extremism another woman walks into the cafe with a baby there's a discussion in German. She hands the infant to this woman and she pulls out her breast and starts breastfeeding and then continues talking like nothing's happening. And I thought, aha, uh-huh. 
this is a German Muslim. <laughs> I'm sure this is something a German woman would do. I was just just floored. And it just again, it just shows you the the complexities. I mean, maybe she's an outlier, but there are there are you've always got to be aware of the um, the fact that there's there's never a straight line from religious texts. And we know this ourselves in in Christianity. That's why we have pastors that have mm. spectacular falls from grace and we have a doctrine of sin that accounts for that. But the point is what what you hear and see <laughs> is often in the human being somewhat more complex than text, which is why I think to do dialogue properly, it has to be very honest. We shouldn't actually be focusing on the commonalities. We should be trying to explore our differences to promote understanding and mutual expect, not because you're going to convert each other, but I think in a pluralistic society, knowledge is essential here. And in a way, my concern, I'm just going broadening it out to a social thing here, is we're turning our pluralism into something very superficial rather than something deep. So that we pretend we, we, we pretend away the differences and we feign respect for every single religion, practice, identity, belief. But we never stop to think, what, what do these people actually believe? What drives their ideas? Isn't it better to know, actually, we, we disagree? I think there's a political analogy here. I mean, why not get conservatives and progressives down so that they really do actually understand what they believe? Not because they're going to come up with some new ecumenical political doctrine, which is a nonsense, but better to better to know what the disagreements are and why, because this doesn't have greater potential for understanding. There's an idea in our culture, I think, that you should focus on commonalities and not to do that is somehow disruptive and dangerous. And I mean, an example of a theologian who did that was Miroslav Volf's book on Allah, where he tried to find commonalities. I am personally very interested in differences. And I think if you want to understand the system, the structure of a system, you need to pay attention to the differences because it's in the, it's in the inconsistencies and the differences that the structure becomes apparent to you. Um, and I, I agree with you. We need to have a way of dealing with that. I sometimes think I, I sometimes see in Christians a tendency to just focus on commonalities and to be frightened by any other conversation. Um, I, I really struck at the beginning of John's Gospel where it says that you know we've seen him full of grace and truth. And one of the uh, kind of uh, errors of our age, I think, is there's a lot of emphasis on grace and not as much emphasis on truth. Um, so that the, the impetus to love your neighbor as yourself will cause you to look for the commonalities perhaps or to dwell on them and to find discussion of difference somehow offensive but um jesus said love your enemies and i think that he, he just com- just in, in, embedded in that is an understanding that you could be radically different from someone in your in your views and expectations but still be able to care for them and cultivating that perspective that we shouldn't be threatened by the differences. We need to actually sit with them and enjoy them in a way and, and work out what they mean. Um, yeah, I, 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 I do agree with you on that. I, I think Christians, when they enter these dialogues, they need a preparation. They need, if you can understand what the basic Islamic grid is, it helps you know what questions to ask and how to present what you believe, because you'll you'll know what's going to be, you know, likely to cause challenges for them. If you don't know that, you have no idea what to present, and or how it might be heard. But then, as you said, you have the challenge of actually listening to people and saying, well, what do you believe about this, and how far will you go, and 
And I think that's when you have the knowledge and the skill to do that, that's when dialogue becomes really interesting, when you're exploring the differences by, by a gracious um, engagement with what the other person thinks. And, and you can often be really surprised and shocked and amazed. And um, I think in our age, we've, we've actually forgotten how to do religion. We've forgotten how to think about religion and how to explore it. And I mean, when I was ordained, I left the university. I'd been head of department and a number of my colleagues came to the service and they listened to the service. And one of them said, oh, I never knew Christianity was so text-based. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought you're a clever guy, you know, and, and um, brilliant scholar. Uh, but d there's very basic things that you don't know about the Western heritage and the Christian tradition. Um, and I think that's one of my passions, really, is to help people have the skills to engage in these discussions and think about implications. I've absolutely no doubt that this issue of the relationship between Christianity and Islam is a is a is a core political issue for the century ahead. You mentioned earlier, alluded to the fact that interest in Islam has sort of gone up and down, like people are very interested after 9-11 now. It's, we've got COVID to think about or the war in Ukraine or China. In my view, Islam and the rise of Islam, the, the trajectory of Islam, its decline as well, is one of the most central uh, themes of the 21st century. And we haven't gone past that period. We've, it's barely begun. Um, so I see my work as really investing into that, into that conversation and, and equipping the church and society in general to conduct that conversation in a, in a more enlightened, informed and effective way. I have no doubt you're right because anything that has one billion uh, members or adherents in a, an increasingly globalized, in, interconnected, interrelating world is going to have ipso facto a massive impact on the shape of the global future in a way it didn't back in the time when we kind of lived in separate communities and we're kind of aware that other people mm. lived but with if you add the demographics to the nature of the world in which we we live and that includes lots of population flows so there's really no part of the world now that doesn't have muslims just like there's virtually no part of the world that doesn't have christians mm. and atheists and you name it. It's just funny just to wrap up that that pluralism point because it just it really struck me as you're speaking that we we are living through a very strange paradox because we're in, in an age that is empirically more plural than it's ever been in terms of the cultures, the ideas, the expressions, the individuality. And yet in some ways we're even we're more ignorant than we've ever been, even though we, we now live amidst <laughs> that difference. And it's because of certain uh, cultural ideas I think that mean we don't want to know about differences and, and a lot of people are desperately you just look at all the rhetoric and I constantly come across scholars who are trying to you know the whole point of their research and scholarly activities to try to find something that can unite people and bring them together now yes of course that's a natural consequence from pluralism because one of the things you get from a pluralistic culture is you do get a breakdown of a national narrative story identity but it's just interesting that they're not interested in the differences. They don't, they don't care what Islam's system is. They got, couldn't care, could care less what Christianity's is. They're just they're looking for <laughs> uh, anything that can bind all people together. And the more plural you get, by definition, the more superficial the, the glue yeah. has to become because it's like trying to find an essence for something that has 
a thousand different expressions. I think people in our culture in the West, um, they do want to believe that we all have the, that all regions are the same in their impact. And we've lost the ability to understand the incredible power of religion to transform societies and nations over time. Sometimes we're seduced by the particularity of individuals, like obviously people believe different things and they're not all the same, just because in the Bible people don't live it out and all that. So so that, um, that evidence is before us all the time. Um, but the reality is that faiths do exert profound cultural um, impact. You know, Saudi Arabia is the country it is today um, significantly because of Islam. Britain is the country it is today significantly because of the influence of Christianity. And in Northern Europe, significantly because of the influence of Lutheranism. It's, uh, but we have actually lost the ability to understand how that works. And we don't have the subtlety to understand the complexity of the relation. It's not just a one-on-one -on -one relation. You know, if, if someone is teaching um, love your neighbours yourself generation after generation it changes the language changes the culture there's an argument to be made that the meaning of the English word love is due to the influence of the New Testament it becomes part of the air you breathe but we've lost the ability to trace that we we, we, we can't understand the, the power of that and that's why I think you, know, you see countries that are sleepwalking into profound internal un, un, it, you know, almost in, in unreconcilable differences in worldview and outlook. Um, but even to talk, even to raise that is, seems offensive and disturbing. Um, so I've, I find that difficult. I mean, one analogy I sometimes use is like a ship and a compass. Like the ship can go all over the place, but every now and again, someone looks at the map and they just turn it back, you know, and eventually they end up in their destination. And yeah, the, the compass and the map doesn't determine every bit of the journey, but it it really keeps reorienting people. I think religion's like that. It keeps bringing people back and it shapes people at the level of very fundamental outlooks. Like what is what does it mean to be human? This is something that Christianity's had an answer to. Um, and you see it in the Sistine Chapel with you know God touching Adam, the creation of Adam. Um, you see the image there, but the implication of that for the way we live is profound. Islam's view that human beings are easily led astray and need guidance produces a very, very different political system, produces a different society with different pathologies and different potentials and needs. And that, the, how profound that is, we are, we've forgot, we don't want to think about it. It's too threatening. Like if all religions are not the same, maybe I should choose one or at least have opinions that differentiate them. But that is kind of contrary to the spirit of the age. And so we, in a very lazy way, just, you know, hit the alarm clock and sleep in for another few hours. You know, we, we don't engage with the reality mm. of, of what's happening. What sometimes I've, I've said, you know, my part of the core of my, my work really is to help people understand what it means to live in a spiritual world, you know, to have the categories, the concepts to understand the power of faith and and people's view of the world from a spiritual perspective and we we really desperately need that in in our time in our age it's interesting because i think the same tendency that has given us a cultural and historical amnesia about the profound impact of the judeo-christian tradition is the same tendency that overlooks or underestimates or is blind to the fact that the religion of islam could have the very impact you're talking about that it, that it could shape enough muslims in a kind of coherent with a coherent worldview and outlook that it could have social cultural political 
economic um, implications. And there's there's a relationship here which goes to your point about religious ignorance. So we've now convinced ourselves as a society that we weren't shaped by Christianity and Judaism. They were just some sort of superstitious phase that we went through that didn't actually get into the into the fundament and um, shape our core values and principles. They're all sort of post-Enlightenment and secular. And therefore, we don't need to even think about what kind of uh, <laughs> view of the world of the human being Islam does because religions don't do that. They're just they're just they're just sort of private belief things that people do in their homes, and we, we let them build mosques and synagogues and temples, and they go away and do that and stuff. And meanwhile, it's it's yeah. science and rationalism, a whole bunch of other things that that shape our culture. Yeah, we see religion as a symptom, not a cause, exactly, or an instrument. You know, an opiate of the masses. We don't see it as a cause, but it is profoundly a cause because it answers. Religions answer the fundamental life questions, and those answers shape everything else. And um, it's, it's. Uh, I, I find that that's one of the most worrying things I think about our, our society today is our inability to really grapple seriously with that. And we've pushed Christianity out of our minds, but then it's left us very vulnerable to dealing with religious ideologies in general. Mark, on that optimistic note, I think we. <laughs> have to bring the discussion to an end but congratulations on, on the book it's a superb piece of scholarship and, and i've long admired the the sort of um analytical acumen you bring to bear on islam and your willingness to sort of probe and challenge and question uh, question and be creative in a topic that a lot of people are very nervous about but um i see this discussion is contributing to the very thing we we both seem to believe in which is and it's actually my tagline honest conversations about the political theological and cultural ideas that shape who we are in the 21st century that includes muslims christians jews and people without any faith and uh, you've just contributed immensely to that and to the program i'm thrilled to have you on so thank you very much thank you jonathan it's been an honor to be on your on your podcast 